The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group. This is Power Players with Dan Clark. Welcome to Power Players. This is Dan Clark. And oh my gosh, hold on to your seat today. For all of you who understand the significance of music, that it's truly the international language, as Trisha Yearwood so famously say, it's the song that remembers when. We all have a, a favorite song. We all have a favorite band that's connected to a moment, to a significant emotional event, a wedding, uh, a, a first kiss, or whatever the case may be. And today, my guest is Hugh McDonald. He's an American musician who is best known for his unmatched session work and for being the bass guitarist for the American rock and roll band Bon Jovi. Hugh's work with the band earned him a 1995 Metal Edge Reader's Choice Award for Best Bassist. That's pretty incredible. Guitar players are, <clears throat> are found a dime a dozen. Uh, <clears throat> I guess vocalists are found a dime a dozen. But when you go into a recording studio, a recording session, or when you're assembling a band, the single most important person in that band is the bass player. And second is the drummer, the percussionist. That's how significant a bass player is, as he is the one that keeps the beat. He keeps the entire band glued together. He's the one that slows them down or speeds them up when they need that direction. And that says a lot about Hugh's personality, about his life. Hugh has played with many other artists both live and in the studio with Willie Nelson, Richie Samburo, Steve Goodman, Ringo Starr, Lita Ford, Michael Bolton, my buddy, Cher, Alice Cooper, my buddy, Ricky Martin, Gavin Whitaker, Michael Buble, Brett Michaels, and of course, Shania Twain. No one, no bass player has a, has, has a complete resume without Shania Twain. In 2018, my buddy Hugh was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Bon Jovi. And I don't really want to break hearts again and again, but in 2004, <clears throat> Hugh McDonald broke literally millions of women's hearts across the world when he married his beloved Kelly, who's a wonderful horse trainer and jewelry designer. They have two children. Hugh McDonald, what an honor, what a treat. Welcome to my show, bro. Oh, it's great to be here. So let's just start right out of the shoots. I love hanging around with musicians because you're the smartest people in the world. You can actually see a, a buffalo in a blue cloudless sky. And you oh, have this I'm way not going to come to that. <laughs> <laughs> you have a unique way of looking at life. Take us all the way back to your beginning. Where did you grow up and how did you find your passion for music? Especially playing the bass guitar, which, as I said in the intro, is so significantly important to every single band and every single song. Well, the reason is the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. I was one of, I'm sure, hundreds of thousands of aspiring musicians that saw that, and it just clicked. And McCartney was the guy, and it was the bass. And I found myself in the basement of my parents' house playing along with a broom left-handed <laughs> <laughs> and uh 
you know, that's, that's, that's how it all started. And uh, I've been lucky. I've been really, really lucky. What was your first gig and how old were you? My first gig was recording an album for uh, a producer that was also a drummer. And he was the band that I was in, the local, the Codells, the, you know, high school rock band that everybody had, at least in in, the, in those days, in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, and this drummer in that band, his, his drum teacher was this guy, Sonny Casella, and he was a producer also. So he used us on on his records because we didn't cost much. <laughs> so that was the first, and I've heard it. I mean, it's on, it's on uh, iTunes, called, it's called the Deidre Wilson Tabak, T-A-B-A-K, I think. I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> I listen to that and I go, well, I haven't, I haven't really improved that much, so I must be doing something right. So it's a compliment of all compliments to be a session musician because when you're on stage and you miss a few notes, you can kind of hide behind the other instruments and fade not out bass. of the spotlight. But not, not in the session. Not the bass, exactly. So not bass speak. live. I believe me, if I, everybody else can screw up, if I hit that one note, it's going to sound like an elephant fart. Then <laughs> you know, there's no hiding. I, there's not a. I, I try to find places to hide, but I can't because because John's stare will get <laughs> me no matter where I'm standing. That's great. So what what do you have to do to to prepare yourself so that you know you you can't afford to miss one note. Isn't that scary? Isn't that amazing? Talk about talk about your understanding of, of the significance of preparation. Well, my preparation, I don't know if you guys can see, but there's my preparation. I've been doing homework because uh, we're going to be uh, doing something uh, – I think August 22nd going to be doing some recording, some live, live stuff to be used later on. And luckily it'll be here in, uh, in Nashville. So I still have uh, another nine days to, to, to learn this whole new record, which was supposed to have been released by now, but because of what's going on, it's now pushed back to October. And there goes one of my dogs. <laughs> I love it. So, so what would you? Uh, how do you relate playing the bass? How do you relate performing music at the highest level to 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 life? To to waking up every morning and realizing there's only twelve notes in music, and every song written was written, written with the same twelve notes, and so it's your job to use your passion and your creativity and your imagination to bring those notes alive. Teach us, if we were sitting at your feet in a master class, relate what you know about music, what you've learned about being that steady beat, that that bass player in, in one of the largest, biggest bands in the world, and how that relates to our everyday life. Well, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> that's, and that's, I think that's where Kiss got Kiss from. But uh, keep it simple, stupid is, is, is my mantra. Uh, it's just, it's, you have to serve the song 
I don't want somebody after listening to something that I played on to 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 necessarily go oh ooh, I love that what a great what a great bass sound or what a great line or what a great this or the other I want them to say wow what a great song what a great recording it has to serve the song so especially bass and drums so take take us into the recording take us into the songwriting world where you know John or someone in the band comes up with an idea and then how do you how do you start to contribute the baseline to to a melody or to a lyric? It's sometimes it just it it just comes to me when I hear the changes. Say "Living on a Prayer" was one that you know. Um, other ones, um, I'll just start simple and build upon it, and then and try to find out from either John or whoever's producing that particular record or whoever co-wrote with John. Uh, try to imagine what they would want and they and believe me they'll tell me and then and and in the fa- i guess in the past 10 years it's been they just want it simple <laughs> really? so if I, I i i a lot of times i'll hear no that that part's too smart and it's okay i can i can play i can play simple but that's going to get the job done and I'm much I'm much happier doing it that way anyway, because I'm not a soloist or it's just meat and potatoes. So, what's uh, what what's the difference between a top forty song and a number one song from from your perspective? Ooh, that's ooh, that's why you get the big bucks. Uh, <laughs> well, I would say. Um, Advertising, <laughs> <laughs> promotion, television, radio, all that stuff. I mean, there's been great, great top 40 songs that didn't make it to number one. And it depends on the team that's, that's, that's taking care of it. Cause once we, uh, once we record it, uh, there's, that's all, that's all we can do. So then, then it has to be. Then it has to be sold. So, who's one of the most interesting artists that you've worked with? Obviously, Bon Jovi is a pretty cool cat. But besides besides John, who else in your memory was one of the most interesting, most talented artists that you've ever met, and and why? Wow. Um, oh, Phoebe Snow. Because she was a, she was just a natural. She was a natural. She wrote amazing songs. Uh, the, the recording sessions for her first album uh, were just a joy. And it was, plus we were all a lot younger then. So it was more about the, it was more about the great songs and her amazing singing then, uh, you know, I got another session after this. So it was just for the joy of it at that point. So wow. he, she's, she's one, uh, you know, probably if I thought about it, I, you know, Ringo was with something else. He was, he was cool. And, uh, you know, it's, if I could be a fly in the wall, if I, if I kept my eyes open, but I, I tend to, I tend to try to focus on the job at hand and not really 
really notice the uh, the stars in the room, as it were. Uh, maybe that's why you became so beloved and so respected is because you just came to work and made everybody else around you better. That's pretty cool. I don't know if that's the case, but that's, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, my son's a guitar player, singer, songwriter, and, you know, everybody told him, you know, all the people that, that were higher ups and people that could do something, you have to surround yourself with people that played better than you do. And that'll raise you up. Uh, and that well, is so true. Yeah. So teach us about the process of deciding which songs actually make it on the album, on the LP. How many do you, uh, how many do you start off with recording? And then what's the process of choosing? And that kind of goes back to how do you know, how do you make it a, a number one song? What's the difference between a top 40? Because how many songs would you actually write and then record before you, you actually decided which ones you're going to release? Oh, there could be as many as 30 or more. John will just keep writing or John and Richie or John and whoever. They'll just keep going until they have what they feel is enough to choose from. And then you, uh, you bang them out, you polish them up and some make it, some don't. Uh, but as for figuring out what's going to be a hit, well, John didn't want didn't want to release "Living on a Prayer." He didn't like it, <laughs> and Richie wow. had to basically say to him, "What are you nuts?" <laughs> what's your favorite Bon Jovi song? Uh, a song called "Lie to Me." I think I think the These Days record. It's it's more of a ballad, but it, it's really good for up songs. The Usual Prayer, I love it. Keep the Faith, I love it. You know, there's there's a lot of them. I mean, I I'm I'm a fan also. So uh, those uh, Slippery When Wet and uh, New Jersey and and These Days records and Keep the Faith. I mean, they're they're great, especially especially the uh, especially the, the second and third album, especially uh, stuff with um, prayer and the bigger hits. Oh, absolutely! So, how do you how do you keep a band glued together for so long when everybody obviously has to have some kind of an ego, or you wouldn't be playing at the highest level in the world? What's the secret to keeping a band together and uh, and and kind of you know in a checks and balance system so that it's all about the music? Like they say in the entrance to the Sun Studios in Memphis, uh, it's all about the music. Stupid. I know you've seen that yeah. design. Yeah, yeah. Recording studio. It's 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 John is the the king of the castle. It's his it's his ball. It's his bat. So it's it's making him happy and also making and, I'm, and ourselves happy in the band with what we're playing. And when those two things come together, that's perfection as far as I'm concerned. If he's if he's smiling and we're all smiling, you know, if it's if you got to beat a song over the head too long, then it then it becomes uh, not fun and stressful. But if it, if everything's going smoothly and the and the ideas are 
going around, then that's that's when you that makes it all worthwhile going in there and beat yourself up. Absolutely. So tell us how you met John Bon Jovi and how you became a part of the band. I know uh, that you didn't you play on his very very first release back in the day. How did you meet him? How did he invite you to play on that first song? Well, he he didn't. He he was working. I mean, before I knew him, he was he was doing demos at his at, at a studio in New York called the Power Station, and he was sweeping up his cousin on the on the, the Power Station and sweeping up and running errands and for all the famous people that were in there working at the time, and then he would do his demos when the when when a studio was open, so it could. It could be anywhere from, you know, it could, be, it could be two in the morning, three in the morning or whatever. I don't remember what time Runaway was, but uh, I got called from uh, someone named Lance Quinn, who I had played in a band with when I was younger, and he was co-producing these demos. And he asked me to come in and do this. They would pick whoever was around at the time to come in and play. For, for, for example, Runaway was Springsteen was in one of the studios and so we got Roy Bitten from from Bruce's band played the keyboards and uh John Waite was doing his first solo record and we got the drummer uh named Frankie the Rocker who has since passed and a drummer a guitar player named Tim Pierce who's still one of the top studio guys in LA and that was the band for Runaway and then um you know, just did the demo and he put a band together of local players from Jersey and thinking that it was only going to be for like a week or two just to promote the song. And, you know, he got signed with that song. So that's that's how I got involved with that. And then I really didn't do anything until the, the, the first album just had Runaway on it. Second album, 7800. I didn't. I didn't have anything to do with that. And then from Slippery on, I played on everything. And in '95, I started playing live with them. Wow. Oh. Which one of your most memorable events that you played anywhere in the world? What stands out as one of your most exhilarating experiences on stage? Oh God. Well, jeez. Uh, we did Hyde Park a few years ago in London, and I think it was ninety thousand or a hundred thousand people. Wow! And yeah, and you know, I see pictures of of stadiums or whatever that will will play, or or a DVD of say. Uh, I mean, one of the first things I played with them uh, was uh, Wembley Arena, the original Wembley Arena in in London. Or not Arena, I'm sorry, Stadium, Wembley Stadium that and it, and it was being filmed for a dvd and so when i saw that because you know it can only take in so much if you're up there playing and you know concentrating i can't see all the people but boy when i when i saw the dvd it, it, it made an impression okay so what do you say to a to a young man a young woman who grows up in a family where the parents say, nah, go to college, get a real job. You can't make it as a musician, you know, get your head out of the clouds. What do you say to them? 
I don't say anything to him because that was my, my mother was that way. My father, you know, he's going, Hey, listen to this. My kid played on this. So he, he loved it. He, he passed away before any of it came to fruition, but you know, it's these days, I don't know. Is there a backup plan? You know, there was a time when, when there was, but the way, the way the world is now, I, I think that you, you do what you do and you try to do it the best you can. And if you're lucky and talented, uh, you'll be able to make a living out of it. I, in my side, I go more for the luck and less for the talent. I just, you know, pulled the wool over people's eyes for a while. So I'm happy with that. <laughs> no, that's not your reputation, bro. You are so well-respected in the whole industry. Well, it's, I, it, it's great. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to do false modesty or anything, but I, I just don't see myself that way. I, I, I'm embarrassed when I'm standing up on stage, even after all these years, could be for five people, could be for 90,000. I, I have to fight my insecurities up there, you know, and, and play the songs and enjoy it. That's, it's weird. It's, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird confluence, but the parent, parent thing i guess every parent says that i don't know these days i mean i, I didn't say that to my son because he wasn't going to hear it <laughs> you know he's, exactly, yeah. he was going to do it no matter what and he's been pushing and gotten better and it's just amazing very amazing. cool so <clears throat> you know we skipped right to your fame and fortune where did you grow up and how, how did you struggle through the music business if you did before you hit it big? <clears throat> I don't, that's weird. Cause I don't remember struggling. It wasn't struggling to me, but I just played. I mean, <laughs> interestingly enough, another story. Um, when my dad passed away, the, the day I left the funeral early, to drive to New York from Philly to play on an album by a guy named Steve Goodman, who was a, who wrote the song Riding on the City of New Orleans. Arlo oh, Guthrie yeah. had a hit with it. But the guy who was producing it was one of the greatest producers ever, a guy named Arif Mardin, who's done everybody from Roberta Flack, Donny Hathaway, to the Bee Gees, you know, the Saturday Night Fever Bee Gees, and... Um, everybody and that was the guy that one of the first times well first time i was really in a new york studio that's that's what i ended up that's where i ended up at and then you know i just i was playing in local bands in philadelphia and you know my neighborhood and playing clubs there and uh you know it just just all sort of played with a guy named Buzzy Linhart who wrote You Got to Have Friends that Carly Simon had a hit with. And these are really, all really ancient. But yeah, I don't ever remember. I never, I know I never hit my mother up for money because she really didn't have any. And, and my dad was gone by then. So it, I just always seemed to get by. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how or why. Because I wasn't making much money, that's for sure. So you stay focused on your passion, and you kept practicing and practicing and preparing, and that's pretty extraordinary. That even after all these years, you still have to practice. So, 
going into the studio, how many how many hours do you still have to practice in order to per, in order to be at your highest level, your 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 A game once the concert or once the tour starts? See, the, well, it's practicing can be taken two ways. You can practice scales, you can practice all kinds of stuff to get your speed up or whatever. My practice is just relearning whatever I recorded that I have to go out and play live. So it's, it, and it's the same as when I first started playing. It hasn't changed in all these years. And I, and I, I told my son that I told other players that, you know, that'll say, oh, I play in a bar band and you know, I've got to rehearse for that. And I went, Hey, even if you record the songs, by the time you have to play them live, I don't know about you, but I can't remember them. So then I got to sit here over and over and over and play the songs and then play them again and play them again and then do it backwards. It's that's, that's my practicing. But how that applies to the theme of this whole podcast, power players, it's it, it, what you're teaching us, Hugh, what you're reminding us about is that that's the secret to, to sales. That's the secret to leadership. That's the secret to parenting. It's consistency. It's, it's trusting the predictability that when you go on tour, John Bon Jovi knows that you're going to show up prepared with your A game. You don't have to waste precious time trying to get up to speed. You show up to speed. You don't have to get ready. You stay ready. I what tried a powerful to. message, brother. Oh, I try to, but, but on the other hand, I don't always stay ready because once COVID hit, I, I didn't, pick up an instrument i didn't even have the urge to and then you know something came comes up so then okay pull them out and and learn the songs <laughs> you know i thought i thought god i'm not going to have to wear i'm not going to be playing until 2021 if that uh, so it's uh it, it's i'm lazy but I, I yeah i gotta give it my all when the time comes yeah, and, uh, and, you know, as a football player, when you go out on a field, we have to understand, especially as spectators now, that a champion's not always a champion, but he is when he needs to be. So, uh, good, yeah. Yeah, you're awesome. Okay, hot seat, brother. One last question. So we talked about, you know, passion and preparation practice. I love quotes that under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to the level of your training. Which exactly. means pressure is not something that's naturally there. It's created when you question your own ability and, and when you know what you've been trained to do, there's never any pressure. That's why we train and practice so hard. That's what I've been hearing from every single answer. So here's the last question, brother. There's a famous uh, <clears throat> university professor. He was battling cancer and he coined the phrase last lecture. And he recorded this speech mostly for his kids who were young girls growing up so that after he took his last breath, they would know what their dad wanted them to know. So if you had one final speech, if you had a last lecture, brother, what's your message to the world as one of the finest musicians on the planet in one of the largest rock and roll bands in history, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Bon Jovi, teach us, what's your message to the world? So when someone says, what did Hugh McDonald represent? We can put it in the hook and maybe I'll write that song. <laughs> well, it's well. There's there's the usual buy low, sell high, um, but now it's everybody wear the masks so we can 
get back to doing stuff so I can get back out there and play. We had a whole tour canceled and an album not released. Uh, you know, it's right now it's all about, and it sounds horrible. Maybe it's because I've been, I watch the news 24 seven, but we got to do something about this stuff. Yeah. And uh, the, I, I don't know. It's the only words of wisdom that I can come up with right now. Well, what I heard you say is take, we all need to take personal responsibility for our lives and we all need to take action. You know, we've got to, yeah. we got to do what we can do when we can do it, pull out your bass and play the song. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, the other thing is, is and that I just mm -hmm. thought of with practice, you don't play it. You don't play it until you get it right. You play it. So you don't get it wrong. Wow. You know, you, so you don't have to, you don't have to think about it. So you rehearse a ridiculous amount or try to, to the point of where it gets boring. But if you, I mean, my mind has wandered at times, TV shows, whatever. And my hand has luckily gone to the right note. And that's, <laughs> that's what you have to be prepared for because it, it's, and the older you get, the more it happens, <laughs> at least with me, I don't know how the stones do it. I, I, I got to talk to them. I think they rehearsed for a couple of months. <laughs> so what I'm getting out of this, even from an athlete's perspective, there's a difference between training to fight and training to win. There's a difference between practicing to play and practicing to perform. Yes. And I really appreciate your wisdom, Hugh. This is, um, this is an honor to have you uh, on this show. And I know people are going to, listen and re-listen because of your wisdom. I can't wait to see you on tour again. We'll, we'll connect again offline, brother. My All best right, to you and your beloved Kelly. And as I always out of this podcast, this is Dan Clark. And remember what, uh, what Hugh McDonald from Bon Jovi has reminded us about this entire interview, that when you finally decide to be a power player, the power play is in you. So, until next time, quantify your takeaway and go make a power play. Sounds like a hook to me, brother. Can't All wait right, to hook buddy. you're amazing. You're one of my heroes. You're a you're you're a superb human being, bro. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do this and it was a pleasure. And I can't wait to see you again in person. Absolutely. We'll make that happen. Have a great right, day. Buddy. Thanks, man.